Hi, welcome to the Holy Fuck Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, author of Fuck Like a Goddess, creator of Radical Awakenings, transformational coach, and student of life. I'm here to stand with you asking questions about what is sacred and what is profane and the space between. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. I want to take a moment to tell you about my upcoming program, Creative Woman Set Free. So I've just been wanting to initiate a group of incredible souls, incredible women into opening their creative channel. And this is really the channel of love. It is the channel that moves from the throat into the heart and into the womb, the pussy. And so a lot of us have a lot of tightening or blockages in that channel, and really it can hinder the expression of our soul in the world. To me, there's an emanation that arises from within, from deep, 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 deep within. Sometimes we pull from the outside first when we're like, who am I and what am I going to express? But in this class, we're going to really source from deep within. We're going to find the magnetic and unique, special thing that only you have. So this has been so important for me. It's like, what is that particular bouquet kaleidoscope of my soul and how do I express that outward in the world? I want to help you find that so that you don't have any questions about it, so that you actually have a direct link down and in to your heart and soul, and you can feel what it wants to express in the world. We're going to have so much fun. There will be ritual. There will be spotlight coaching. There will be anecdotes from me about my epic fails and epic wins and myths and stories, and it will be a beautiful journey. So come on board. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to have you. I'm so happy to welcome Vicki Noble onto today's podcast. I have been following her work for 20 years since I purchased the Mother Peace deck and read her book, Shakti Woman. Both of them impacted me in huge ways. I had the pleasure of meeting her in 2019, which we chat about. She is the trailblazer that has impacted you, whether you know it or not. So listen to this podcast, share it with your friends. She is truly a treasure. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Holy Fuck Podcast. I am so excited to be here today with Vicki Noble. This is a huge honor. For me, too. Thank you so much. Well, we were just having a pre-roll conversation that was really juicy. And I was like, wait, we've got to talk about this here. And Vicki was sharing a quote with me um, that I've never, I mean, a statistic rather that I've never heard before. And I'm wondering if you could share it again, because I will probably get it wrong. Well, I wish I had it more clearly, but it was decades ago, at least probably 20 years ago, and maybe more. I I read that they had done a study or a poll, maybe, of Americans, and they learned that 80% of Americans believed they would be famous. Wow. And these were young Americans, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I knew at the time that's impossible, or at least... Before TikTok, that was impossible. Wow. And and so it seemed utterly delusional, but I thought that's amazing. That's where we, that's how much we love celebrity culture. And the, 
you know, the idol uh, shows had started by then, the competitions. And right. so I think it's really, that's very American of us. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, if you looked at any other countries and did that same study, like what the difference would be, like if there yeah. are any other places that are kind of in the running with that percentage, or if we're just like, I mean, I don't want to use any derogatory words because I grew up wanting to be an actor and a performer and a ballerina and I was in the theater and da, 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 da. So I've done it for a long time. I would definitely be, I would have checked that box because like uh -huh. I want to be an actor since I was a little girl. You and the other 80%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, it's, it's fascinating just to consider culturally where we are right now. And Vicky and I were talking because... I've been following her or let's say influenced by um, uh, her work has been present to me for uh, like over 20 years. And um, I think that her work really influenced like a lot of women in the mystical, spiritual, uh, feminine path. And we'll get so we'll go really deep into that. But we were talking about that there's a bit of a chasm in terms of like wise teachers, elders reaching um, youth, because you all don't always have the flashy marketing. Right. And like the fancy the uh, social media. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's not age appropriate, really. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, you have you have the Shakti, you have the hormones, you the young women are are pumping out Shaktified uh, expression and I was too at yeah. that age and uh, it's so, it would be so inappropriate I feel for me at this age or anybody I know at this age I'm 75 now you know to try to beam out some sexy flashy fast paced right. little video you know uh, I, I just it's not my Right. Nature at this point. Yeah. But, but the problem I think that you're addressing, uh, tell me if this is true. It, yeah. For me, it's that in our culture, we don't actually value elders. Yeah. And so that's really different from all indigenous cultures and from even, even European cultures value right elders more than we do here in the states so that's a that's terrible for women for naturally getting older and doing yeah. it with grace you know we want to do it naturally with grace right it's right. hard <laughs> right i mean i can imagine and you all have lived through all of it and so yeah, yeah. the the rupture there between us and our elders, our wise ones, to me is really painful. I wrote a poem about it that maybe will make it into my next book, which is like has mm. stories and poems and things. Mm. But um, it was the poem is something about a society that lost its elders and what it does okay. to us, like okay. the fact <clears throat> that there are places in the world where the elders are treated with such honor and reverence. Yes. And, you know, in those cultures, in many of the indigenous cultures, uh, old older women, uh, for instance, going through menopause, it isn't a big deal. Mm. It doesn't have all the symptoms and the pathologies 
that mm -hmm. we find ourselves faced with mm -hmm. in this country, in this culture. Um, and I don't know how much of that is diet and how much of it is stress mm -hmm. and how much of it is just all the, you know, the spinning and, instead of resting. Uh, but, uh, but it all must contribute. And mm -hmm. when I realized that, you know, when I learned that uh, many Indigenous women didn't have any symptoms. So when asked about menopause, they were like, mm. Mm -hmm. you know, and then what happens? And then they become leaders in their culture. And yeah. so, you know, that would be a different experience. Yeah. My yeah. precious granddaughter, who's 22 now, and my the, my, the heart of my heart. Yeah once turned and said to me hey boomer when we were having a conversation and i said uh no 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 <laughs> you can't do that <laughs> not in our family not in our lineage no but that's the thing what did that mean what was she what did she mean by that she was she was using a slang phrase to to like, put like all from the baby boomers ah. in one category, uh, and uh, and it, it was derogatory, right? Okay. I mean, she. I don't think her intention was right, derogatory right, right. because we really love each other. But but in that moment, she mm. she did that thing, and uh, mm. that's very unfortunate. That if if those are the attitudes we have toward one another. Right. The older and the younger, you know, we're never going to have an interesting conversation. Well, I feel like that with the Gen Z kids now, like I'm a millennial and I am like outdated, not cool. You know, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. So soon. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm like, you know what? I'm OK with that. I'm OK with kind of being my age, you know, and I'm not trying to act like a teenager. When yes. I see sometimes people that are my age, which is 38, which I feel like is very close to 40. I'm like, my partner keeps being like, why do you keep saying you're close to 40? I'm like, I'm preparing myself for the journey because I am. I am. <laughs> um, but when I see people that are close to 40, like emulating the teenage behavior and fashion yes. from right now, I'm kind of like not trying to be judgmental about it, but I can feel this obsession with youth and uh -huh. eternal youth. Yes. They say they've always said in this country, we worship youth, uh -huh. that we yeah. are a youth culture yeah. and a celebrity culture. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I have I have a grandson who's all over TikTok and, get, you know, has millions yeah. of people. So why do we incarnate here, Vicky? Tell me. <laughs> Well, probably not for that, but who knows? <laughs> well, I did have a, a Tibetan uh, Buddhist uh, nun when I was in Bodh Gaya on this trip, which I think I told you about when we met yeah. Um, yeah. that I had gone to India and Nepal. And um, I had her, she said to um, me and, and a few of my friends that were together, she said, well, she was British, but, you know, lives now in, in India. And she's like, well, you all incarnated in that country yes, with that did. president. Because at the time, Trump was president. She was like, this is your karma. And it really felt like oh. it's, it's true. Like, this, uh -huh. is, uh -huh. this isn't separate than me. I'm not above it, right? Like, I am it. I am in this. Oh, yes. You we know? share the collective karma. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And 
we also have individual karma, obviously, and have a dharma, a destiny, something that we incarnated to do, especially if we're dakinis, if we're born to uh, help alleviate suffering. Yeah. So tell us about that. What do you mean by that? What? And I want to hear also just a little bit about your path for those people, which I know um, has been long and that there are many pieces to it. And you could probably keep writing tons of books about it. But um, I would love for you to hear what you mean by Dakini. And then also, yeah, just a little bit about your spiritual path, if you call it that. Um well, I, I did write a lot in uh, my 1991 book, Shakti Woman. Which about, we all love. And if you haven't read Shakti Woman, where have you been? This book <laughs> has influenced almost every woman healer out there, you know, who's walking mm-hmm. the path, whether they know it or not. So well, I am gratified in these last uh, with all the social media. It It seems that a lot of young women have found my younger women yeah. have found Shakti Woman again, and they're still saying, you know, that it changed their lives. So that makes me feel really satisfied as an elder that that can keep on happening. And the Mother Peace Tarot, obviously, was my claim to fame. And that that has kind of regenerated itself in the younger community and the, the tarot uh, tradition yeah. in general is really available and interesting right now to, yeah. to young people, which is great. Yeah. And Mother Peace, as a part of that, has has been uh, much more um, much more available and, and uh, widespread again in mm-hmm. this last decade, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. But how it all started was, uh, of course, without any uh, forethought. We we just had no idea. I was living with my partner, Karen Vogel, at the time, and we were raising my teenage daughters, even preteen, I believe, at that age. And um, and we we were we thought we were probably going to write a really important book. We were studying the ancient goddess cultures, and it had it had come to light through a, f- a couple of books in the early 70s, but not much was known. And so we were going to the Berkeley Library and the Stanford Art Library and looking at all the images and just immersing in, in all of that ancient culture. And also, at the same time, awakening psychically, mm. healing from, you know, so many things and doing psychic healing, doing classes. Uh, I was having incredible kundalini experiences before I knew about yoga, but I found yoga. I found it in books. I found um, shamanism in books. You know, we just went to the used bookstores around Berkeley every day. We just walked and read and it was it was a perfect time. The the 70s. I've said it to my students before, you know, it it was a different time in terms of the economics. Everything was easy and it didn't take much money to live on. And we lived without a car and didn't Mm -hmm. mind. And, you know, it was just a a very easy, beautiful time when everything seemed to be opening or to be open and uh, flowing and there was so much possibility. So I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. That was the decade of my 
20s and into my early 30s that we were working uh, on what we thought was this great book and turned out to be the Motherpiece Tarot deck. Mm. And then I, I wrote books from that, but uh, it was the images that started to come. Mm. And it was the tarot that came to my attention. And I and it was so wonderful. I couldn't stop playing with it. The mm. weight deck and then the uh, Lester Crowley deck, the mm-hmm. thought deck. Wonderful, mm-hmm. but also patriarchal. Yeah. And so we were radical feminists and we naturally began to imagine what it would be like to if we were if I were doing this card, what would it look like? And so at a certain point, we did start making the motherpiece images and we spent a year doing the drawings and then a few more years getting the cards in print. And and then uh, Harper, San Francisco, contacted me and wanted me to write a book awesome. to go with the cards. And so that's how that happened and that's how the that's how all the feminist work was coming to public attention in those days it was uh it was in, interested editors reaching out you know and being curious about these movements that were coalescing um and the women's spirituality movement in berkeley was strong wow. and so that's that's where we were based and that mm-hmm. that was wonderful So all of that, all of that psychic opening and everything uh, just uh, changed my life so much. I I already felt feminism was my spiritual path. Mm. And I still feel that way. Mm. No matter how I morph from one form to another, you know, it's the base is radical feminism. Mm. and, And that keeps me in contact with why I'm here Mm. and why I incarnated. But over the years, that has changed. First, it was female shamanism. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, it became redundant in some way because we began to have access to shamans from indigenous cultures, which I think is very appropriate. And and so in, in the course of time, I started to train women just to be energy healers. Mm-hmm. And I had a school for a while and in Berkeley and did that. And we created a, a wonderful group healing ritual with drumming and chanting and hands-on healing that mm-hmm. was very powerful. And people would come who were sick and lie down in the circle. And mm-hmm. they would sometimes get healed, mm-hmm. you know, spontaneous mm-hmm. remission, it's mm-hmm. called, when you just, you know, have a... Mm-hmm have a happening and they don't even the medical doesn't even keep track of spontaneous remissions so there's no data right it's all anecdotal but that was a that was a that's when I was in my early 40s I Mm. loved turning 40 Mm. I I thought it was the best so yeah I'm I'm ready for it like the youthful girlish I'm like (laughs) you know I feel more robust in yeah. different realms. Like yeah. that feels good. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. So, so part of, I think why this is so, I mean, it's so revolutionary to use that word. It's especially in the spiritual realm for to create the first deck of cards that was really honoring women's bodies, women's wisdom, women's psychic potential, women's healing powers, 
um, that just hadn't been honored in the West, right, at all. Um, right. So that that in itself, I, I imagine that when people got the deck there, it resonated in a really deep level because we know we have at some deep, deep level, I think yes, we all think. know that we have these healing potentials that our menstrual cycle is beautiful, that our body and our instincts hold a lot of power, that our dreams hold power, yes. um, that the breath, like all of these different aspects that our sex, that our art, like that all of it is um, intrinsically a part of our gift in, in incarnating into a female form but and you know we use the words universal and yeah. things that um i'm more careful about these days because yeah. it's confusing to people yeah uh, there is a universality yeah bleed you yeah. know and have the capacity to give birth there is a, a a commonality around the world right but um but everybody Every culture is so different. Every uh, ethnic identity is so different. One of the things we did in the mother piece cards is that more than half of the images are women of color. Mm -hmm. We really were very uh, interested in the vitality and the wisdom of indigenous cultures. And, right. and at the time, there wasn't much happening in the public discourse right nowadays right. of course you know yeah. we might take a different tack yeah and that's why you all were trailblazers and revolutionaries to put that forward and i think anyone who's visionary and puts forward something like the, the i talk about this i think i've probably talked about it on the podcast before but like you don't always get the immediate success from it because you're doing right. something new and you're like, you're right. going to the edge for the collective. Like the collective is in a cute little pod and you're going, no, I'm going to walk over there and yes. see what's there and invite you. I'm going to get over. outside of yeah. the mainstream and exactly. have a look. Yeah. yeah. And you know, um, that's so true in, in so many ways because the tarot community at the time was quite strong. Everybody was doing tarot and astrology and all that um, and, and doing it fairly deeply. The whole Western esoteric magical tradition was available and, you know, <laughs> was kind of happening, at least in Berkeley. And, um, and yet our, our deck was so weird in that context, you know, it was so fresh and we used a kind of folk art type mm -hmm. of drawing and and we knew we were drawing a lot from uh, world culture mm -hmm. and we wanted to bring that forward. But the tarot community couldn't figure out what was going on with us. And, and so there's always been a kind of funny uh -huh. thing where the tarot community isn't so interested in mother peace and women who find mother peace aren't really interested in the tarot community. Maybe now it's different, but right. for a long time, there was like two camps or something mm -hmm. and women came into the tarot through mother peace. They'd been frightened before. And I heard a lot of women right. say that, you know, yeah, uh, we were very attracted to it. So yeah, I mean, I think when I got it, I can't remember if my mom got it for me or who got it for me, but mm. I must have been, I think, 18, um, just going to college, first year college. And I definitely, the Aleister Crowley deck scared me a little bit back then, yeah, for sure. 
<laughs> Later, I had a boyfriend who was super into him. And even, then it became even more scary once I knew what was really happening. Well, yeah, it, it was dark. <laughs> it was dark. But I could but feel it when I was younger, you know, it's kind of uh-huh. like, mm, I don't know. But uh-huh. I do remember bringing the mother piece uh, deck into one of my high school friends' homes who I grew up in Marietta, Georgia. And her parents flipped because, yeah. you know, it was devil worship. Thing the work do. of the devil. Absolutely. You know, there were laws on the books against tarot. No, at I didn't. The time know. that we were making them. Absolutely. Z Budapest was arrested in L.A. in the early 1970s for doing tarot readings. <gasps> Yeah, it was the and there were laws on the books in San Jose uh, at the time that we were making the cards and learning astrology that were uh, that w- they were laws against astrology on the books. Uh huh. And see, this is a thing that I think many of us may take for granted who have access to tarot and astrology, just like so many kind of freedoms that we have yeah. nowadays as women, especially, but as humans in general, um, that it wasn't always like that. And that there are right. people like you who paved the way for us. Um, it's so, it's so special. I'm so grateful. You know, I think that I think we all need to have a little bit of dose of gratitude that um, a lot of people worked hard so that things like tarot or astrology or energy work could be liberated and not uh-huh. as part of some, you know, fringe, culty, devil, whatever. Right. Well, we were so liberated in yeah. inside of those forms. You know, it was such a thrilling time. Because it actually seemed as if everything had changed so much and was changing so much that it would just continue to Uh change and that we would, you know, stop all the, I mean, there were prophecies in that time about the climate and about the toxins in the environment. And and I just thought we would change everything. I really believed it. I had a kind of crisis in at the millennium <clears throat> because I realized, oh, oh, we're not. <laughs> oh, surprise. We're actually not. We didn't do that. We aren't choosing to do that as a collective. We're choosing capitalism and we're not choosing to take a hold of our future in that way. And and it was very shocking and kind of shattering, actually. And I left Berkeley and went to the mountains in Santa Cruz. And that's when I started to do the Dakini practices that I had learned mm. through uh, over many years in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but I had never needed them so much. And so I had never been a really good practitioner. I went to retreats with Sultram Alioni and I learned beautiful Dakini practices. And But I didn't do them until around 2000. Mm-hmm. And then I started to do them in earnest. I moved up to the Redwoods. I got a little cabin uh, and I said, okay, here I am have me, you know, and wow. I started, I, I literally chopped wood and had fires in the fireplace and did my practices. Wow. And it turned out to be extremely fruitful because I thought if they, if they don't work for me now, they don't work. Mm. And of course they do work. They're mm. fantastic. And the Tibetans have saved the practices, uh, which are very female based. Uh, and I know it's a paradox because 
there's so many, mostly men doing, you know, yeah. doing the Buddhism in Tibet. But yeah. uh, but it doesn't matter. They're very feminine and they're peaceful. Mm. And so if all the men in the world decided to be Tibetan Buddhist tomorrow, mm. we'd have peace on earth mm. and be a good start, you know, mm-hmm. good place to begin. Mm. So I was uh, I was very thankful that they had preserved the traditions and that there were actually practices in writing in these old texts that were about wild, magical women, Mm -hmm. women who they're goddesses and they also take form as human women. Mm. It doesn't mean all women are Dakinis, but any woman could be. Mm. And so there's a level of, uh, sort of collective respect in mm-hmm. that sense for, for the powers of women and their shamanistic powers. The Dakini means a woman who flies through space, a woman who moves through space. Mm-hmm. And I I identified with that and related to that so deeply because of my shamanistic background that women so easily get out of our bodies and back in, that the energetics of moving through space it comes naturally to women on account of our biology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, postmodernism has brought a pretty big wedge into that understanding because we don't want to talk about biology anymore. Right. But, you know, I I love women as a people and I I love the the female healing powers and the natural I guess it's the oxytocin, you know, the way that they've shown that in the crisis, you know, men have fight or flight, but women tend to have an oxytocin response, which is more like gather in the children and and collaborate with each other on solutions. I just feel like if we put, if women really were governing as they do in matriarchal cultures, that we would have solutions mm-hmm. and they would be different solutions. And, yeah. you know, I know that's uh, essentialist, <laughs> not a word I made up ah. that has been applied. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it seems true to me and it still seems true after this long time. I feel like I've sort of seen the whole spectrum. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in fact, I'm now bringing the work of Maria Gimbutas to my younger students because they've forgotten who she was or they haven't read her books. And she was the person, the the archaeologist who put the ancient goddess cultures on the map, who literally did archaeology and showed us, you know, excavated and brought to light the ancient culture of old Europe. And and for me, that was so special because, you know, Native people had said to us in the 70s very strongly, get out of our material, find your own tradition, go back to your own tradition, your own spiritual tradition. And I felt like, oh, I don't want to be a Presbyterian anymore. Right. (laughs) You know, that I just don't want that. I don't want to be a Presbyterian. Yeah, I grew up Presbyterian. (laughs) <laughs> and then I realized, oh, we are going back. We are going way back wow. and reclaiming our roots. Uh, any of us who come at all from European culture have roots that go way back to a matriarchal, shamanistic, 
earth-based, peaceful, artistic, very refined culture, civilization, the first civilization. And so that would be like pre-Anglo-Saxon. Oh, it's pre-Sumerian. It's okay. You know, this is this is several thousand years before the rise of the state. Okay. And so the rise of the state is what brought us Mesopotamia and dynastic Egypt, and those are the two uh, important cultures or civilizations that had writing. Yeah. And so that they're considered very significant, but they're very patriarchal, yeah. both of them. And that is when patriarchy happened about 5,000 years ago. But it happened in uh, in Europe, maybe first. It, the, the patriarchal tribes came in a little at a time. And Maria Gimbutas had had seen that in the archaeology and had written books about it. Had, it well, had, well, she had written books even from the 50s. Um, talking about her Kurgan theory, you know, that that there were these other kinds of people who came in uh, to the to the old European cultures along the Danube and leading up to the Black Sea, that whole area. And that they, um, you know, Maria Gimbutas called it a collision of cultures Mm. uh, because this male dominant violent culture met up with, you know, this peaceful, artistic, women-centered culture that had grown up for thousands of years, uh, from Greece all the way up to the Danube and all the way across the Danube to the Black Sea, a big, big space, even up into the Ukraine, into Ukraine and Moldavia mm-hmm. and so on. And so anyway, I'm pulling yeah. all of that together. I love that. And I'm so excited. I spent the whole summer rereading all of her books and bringing it, synthesizing it so that I can do this online class that I'm starting in October Mm. and really expose her work, you know, to all of those who have maybe heard of her vaguely or know something about it, but not much. Yeah. Because there are things that... uh, have been irritating for me in the last decade or two. Please Uh, tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Really irritating. The whole thing that happened around, you know, first there was this idea that agriculture was this great uh, innovation and this uh, revolution. Um, That was the classic view. And then, uh, and then, you know, I don't know, the, a bunch of guys living out in Santa Fe area that love to be out on the land and, you know, identified with hunter gatherers, um, hunters mainly, started talking about agriculture as the beginning of our problems. Mm. That agriculture equated with private property. Mm. But that was never true. All the evidence shows collective ownership, no class stratification, no centralized government. Mm. Somehow people managed to do conflict resolution without war, you know, without violence, and made the most beautiful art the world has ever known. Mm. And all of that was part of the agricultural expansion and what agriculture and, and settling down, becoming sedentary, really meant for people 
it was some it was so powerful it in so many ways <clears throat> things got healthier but anyway mm. 5000 years later 4 or 5000 years later patriarchy happened and with patriarchy <clears throat> came i <clears throat> sorry i have allergies yeah it's that season it's okay um, with patriarchy came uh clear cutting and big irrigation projects and damming rivers and all the things that we understand now are very bad for the land and bad for the environment ultimately but none of that was happening before because it was female centered and religious agriculture was sacred uh, all the uh in the temples they you know baked bread mm -hmm. from the seeds from yeah. the wheat you know it was Everything was mundane and sacred. Mm -hmm. One thing. Yeah. And and no no separation. Right. So it's so hard for us moderns, you know, to wrap our minds around that. I know. And I so know. and so that's been a kind of mythology in the progressive movement for the last 10 or 20 years that they say 10,000 years of patriarchy. It's like no. You just erased 5,000 years of female-centered, incredible, uh, sustainable agriculture and peace on earth. You just erased it in that glib conclusion, you know. Wow. Yeah. So it matters. Yeah. It matters right now because we're we're desperate mm -hmm. for solutions. And mm -hmm. yet look at us, we're 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 at war everywhere. I know. It's we're still in such a pickle. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I have a question for you. So I think I, I started to have a little bit of an allergy to the word patriarchy because I think I used it so much for a certain oh, amount uh -huh. of time that I was like, is there another way? Because I do think patriarch has shadow and light, right? Like there's a there's a loving, benevolent patriarch of a family, potentially, right? Like potentially there's there could be um, like the the mother and father principle in a healthy balance. Of course. Um, Although and I, I would, I would say yeah. fatherhood was not institutionalized. Biological fatherhood, even though they've known about it since forever, yeah. they were domesticating animals. Um, they didn't institutionalize it. And in matriarchal cultures that are alive today, they don't institutionalize it. They what does know, that mean, institutionalize? Like, so the, the father doesn't have to take responsibility for the kids or? Well, there's no need because in a, in a mother-centered culture, all the children belong to all the mothers. And uh, it's a kind of uh, communal yeah. responsibility. And the brothers, let's say I have three daughters you know and uh and their brothers will be the social parent of their children and they they'll all be in a uh, not a household exactly but a, a village uh, yeah less than that more like a compound you know yeah but yeah. it will be from say the grandmother and the mothers and the daughters and then their people, you know, come to them. And so it's a whole other kind of structure. Go and ahead. the men, where, where are the grown men during that? 
The grown men, any uh, work they do, whatever they contribute, goes to their mother's household and to the female line. Mm -hmm. And so there are no illegitimate children. And they don't get married. And they don't get married. I'm I'm speaking especially now about the Moso in China. Okay. They're the classic matriarchal structure, and they it's they have call a walking marriage. The girls are given their own rooms when they are thirteen or get their bloods, and the the boys come to them. They're allowed. I mean, they're they're encouraged. That's what it's for, and they spend their teenage years uh, entertaining one lover or many lovers there's different words for a woman who has one friend or a woman who has many friends wow. and the children uh the children i i would love to know how this works and how they've managed but uh they don't have children until they're about 20 okay so they've got some sort of a very they've innovative got, birth control happening yeah exactly exactly or maybe maybe the men practice some sort of semen retention or they're taught that or who knows yeah, we don't know and i i did ask but no you know that's not something anybody has wanted to talk about so far <laughs> fair <laughs> enough um so that's just fascinating obviously it's kind of mind-blowing to to all of us i'm like whoa how would that even exist of like yeah you know yeah. i'm like well does that mean that like soulmates <laughs> like do soulmates even exist like i don't know obviously there's all these different questions in my mind at this uh -huh. moment <laughs> i think we have all different type, types of soulmates but i think we've been conditioned to to see like that sort of um dyadic structure as uh -huh. from all the movies and everything and but, some of them they they do pair bond if they want they do some okay. of them, yeah they might have a lover for their whole lives yeah. but it's not a marriage it's not required it's not the state has no part in it wow and, uh, and there's no need it's not like the men aren't responsible they're probably much more responsible than in our culture where they can just walk away um but they don't because they are part of they're part of a lineage. Mm -hmm. The children are their children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but they didn't make them. Right. <laughs> and they don't own them. They the don't. word patriarch has an ownership quality. Uh -huh. It means, and it has a dominating quality. It means mm -hmm. dominating women. Wow. Yeah. Have you heard of speaking of dominating? I can't remember the name, the author, um, but who talks about like dominator culture. That's Rihanna Eisler. Right. Yes. Right. The, so, the Chalice and the Blade was her famous book that came yes. out in the 80s, I think. And I liked, I didn't read that book, but my friend Ruby and I were talking about it as she was researching for her next book. And um, so it was a dominator culture. And what was the other? Partnership. Partnership culture. Partnership. I, I appreciated that that as well, just for my own kind of mental, like mm. having the word patriarchy so much coming through me in the last 20 years or whatever. Um, oh. I, it helped me to kind of contextualize a little bit different as like, oh, the culture that's based on domination or that's based on partnership and community. Let's see, community is a different word than partnership. I, I, I wasn't always totally happy with that yeah that because it's so heteronormative right and, and that's a problem you know uh -huh. and, and in 
when yeah. we say community, it's inclusive. It's inclusive. Yeah, partners, dyadic. It's two. Yeah. That's true. And I've had That's true. Uh, I've had men partners and women partners, and so if we really made it more open that way, but it kind of isn't. It kind of isn't it's really pretty gendered, you know. Yeah. So many mm-hmm. things have been. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting to consider. I mean, I like the the work of Marion Woodman too. I'm sure you've come across her, her work um, in terms of she uses the sort of um, juxtaposition of love and power when she yeah. talks about the feminine and kind of that our work that the that she doesn't she uses patriarchy sometimes, but she says like a power centric society versus like a love centric society. Again, that's kind of essentializing in a way, but she comes from the archetypal Jungian kind of lineage. So yeah. makes yeah. sense. But it's it's I think it's important for all of us to really deeply have a relationship to what that means, right? So that some people I think interchange patriarchy with capitalism, with abuse, like they, at, at this point. Well, I think that works. I think the thing that we have to do is yeah. we have to unbraid patriarchy and masculinity yes okay it's as if you know we're identifying men as patriarchal or okay patriarchy is men Uh but that's not quite correct patriarchy is a system and it's a system of domination Mm -hmm. and it does mainly come through and express itself through men and through male or at least historically it has right well, it, it all, that's all. You think it still is? <laughs> 5,000 years of that yeah. history. But the thing is, it's very important because so many of us have so many men in our lives who are wonderful and who don't fit those characteristics. And so I always just encourage people to remember that pa- that that masculinity is not patriarchy. Right. Masculinity is sacred. Yes. And the masculine, when we say the sacred masculine or the sacred feminine, we're not talking about all men and all women. And we're not talking about a system. Right. We're talking about a, a quality, like a principle. Right. And so when I was making the mother piece cards, I, it became very clear to me. We thought we might make an all female deck, but I, I had this epiphany where I felt, oh, we actually need to be able to image to imagine a, a, a positive male principle mm-hmm. because we were talking about patriarchy all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and Karen and I had uh, opted out. So for five years, I didn't even have a man in my house, uh-huh. you know, so we were yeah. really serious about it, yeah. but I wasn't, I wasn't damning all men, right? you know, to that, category it's very very complex it's complex and i think for me the unbraiding process Uh has been transformational shadow work healing work with my dad with all men you know it's been a journey it's Uh not been an overnight yeah yeah and i think a lot of us are still reckoning with that it's like oh how do we unbraid that um loving healthy, sacred masculine from that domination and, um, you know, war and all of these other types. Yeah. And we're, we're just, uh, we're so steeped in it and we're so invested in a certain way, you know, we've been enculturated so deeply. Uh, I think of what's happening with Ukraine right now. 
I just think this is just a travesty. All the women ha have gone with the children and all the men are there making war. And there just has to have been a better solution. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just that just and we're so eager to send them big, big, important weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, it's just it's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the solution is. I'm not saying I have a solution in my pocket, you know, mm -hmm. but I do think that if more women were at the table in these organizations that try to come to terms with these crises, that the solutions would be better. Yeah. I really believe that. And they even uh, there was a video last in the last five years there was a video maybe two years and it was about women heads of state it was very uh creative i don't know who made it uh but it was it was showing women heads of states and there were a lot of them all over the world i had no idea and uh and th that in every case oh yeah it had to be two years ago because in every case they were handling the covid crisis better mm. And and so somebody made that video and made that survey uh, to and and that's that's a great start. We ought to be mm -hmm. talking about things like that. What happens when when women are in the decision making process? Yeah, I definitely have thought about that so much, and I I agree. And I think that when like like you said, we're so steeped within the problems and yes. the intensity of this world that to look outside and to go wait time out like <laughs> yes. war and yeah um just sucking out all of the nutrients from the earth and throwing the toxins yeah. back out into the atmosphere and just like throwing away dirty diapers into the ocean like time out doesn't that seem kind of yeah. off you guys like well, the, the, yeah. we're so deep with it's like we've got ourselves so deep into a pickle that um yeah. I have no idea how we're going to get out. And I don't talk about this that much on this, on the podcast here, because it, it, it can be really intense and depressing. There's a, some great writers who I follow. One is Daniel Pinchback, who writes a lot about, you know, modern solutions, climate solutions, um, spiritual materialism, like who's actually paying attention. His work is really awesome. And I get overwhelmed. I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like we're fucked. The best thing I can do is to like create moments of ritual, of prayer, um, try to do my best in my community, give back in my community, give back resources to you know but the the bigger scale at this point in time it does feel a bit um daunting however i trust the divine mother the wild <laughs> sacred creators of this whole um experience so instead of going deeper down that i want to ask you what helps you in these moments, like you said, that you had the kind of reckoning in, in the year 2000. Tell us a little bit more about what helps you to hold your spiritual framework and hope and possibility and the, the capacity for change. Yes, I, I it's very simple and I've done it for a really long time, but especially in the last 20 years, I've been more aware of what it is I'm doing. It's a very Buddhist approach, I think. On the one hand, I always feel I have two tracks mm -hmm. going, and they're equally real okay. and equally important. And the one track 
is the one that was so is so depressing that we've ruined everything and there's no there's no exit except extinction and and so that seems so then i think well all these scientists trying to solve problems that they caused in the first place that's not going to help and i so i don't trust any of that and i feel if that were the only thing i was anchored in that would be terrible for me because i i would have no hope <laughs> because i don't think we can solve these problems scientifically <laughs> they've gone too far i think mother mother earth mother universe is going to take care of the whole thing on the other hand i never give up hope or faith because i know that the earth has such incredible regenerative capacities and so do our bodies i right. learned that as a healer we have the most incredible regenerative capacities that we don't understand and so we think you know if you if you have cancer you have to do chemo and radiation and you have to like go through this horror show for a period of time and maybe you'll get well but you know there are other forms of healing around the planet and yeah. they're uh they're incredibly effective and they they have to do with large spiritual energies coming down bigger energies than we in our little egos and our frontal lobes than we understand and mm -hmm. so all my faith is in the possibilities the 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 sense of possibility for me is that anything could happen any minute on this earth anything could happen we we have the capacity to spontaneously heal ourselves or spontaneously completely change our direction you know and and we find out in little ways you know lake erie was de proclaimed dead at a certain point and so they somehow got the factories the paper factories to stop dumping any more toxins into the lake and after a while surprise lake erie regenerated and yeah. came alive again you know and it's like a miracle but those miracles happen all the time that's mm -hmm. nature and we are nature even though we can't remember that we are <laughs> yeah. we are we are part of nature yeah. we are we should be more in cycles you know the way that we used to be in the way that they are in indigenous cultures where yeah. cyclic time is recognized and and so we don't go for just growth 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 because that's impossible to sustain mm. you have to have some you have to breathe out and then breathe in you know you have yeah. to have the two parts and so mm -hmm. that's that's what i trust and yeah I, it it buoys me up whenever I see evidence of some miraculous, unexpected uh, turn for the better. Yeah, and the rest of it I watch like a movie because I I really feel as a Buddhist, you know, it's it's happening, it's unfold, it's unfurling, it's unfolding. The karma is unfolding. We've yeah. gone so far. Yeah, it has to finish. Right. And so, uh, you know, we're in for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's helpful. That feels good to hear. Thank you. <laughs> good. So before I let you go, I do want to hear a little bit more about your um, 
you're the path, but sometimes I call the female like spiritual path. I'm like, it's like the path with no name is like what I tell some of the women in my circles. I'm like, it doesn't quite have a lineage. It's not like Buddhist where it has a lineage. You know, uh-huh. we honor our cycles. We honor nature's cycles. We honor our dreams. You know, we honor our lovemaking. We create ritual, but there's no tradition, you know? And I think my colonized Western mind doesn't like that. <laughs> It's like you don't like women's spirituality. No, doesn't like not having a name. Well, oh, you mean as a name? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That's I what guess we called it. Just women's spirituality. Okay, I guess I'm overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I want something fancy, I guess, but no. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you'll think of a name. Yeah. Well, women's spirituality feels um or women's innate spirituality or you know something like that feels uh-huh. um, true. So, I love that that was your first path and then that you did enter into a Tibetan Buddhist path but from a female perspective because I think when we chatted um when we were on that uh, <laughs> car ride from Kripalu to okay. the train station because we both spoke at Women's Week at Kripalu in 2019, which was awesome. Yeah, right um, but I before think the pandemic. Before the pandemic, it was yeah. really special. Yeah, but I think I had shared with you that I mean I loved my studies in Tibetan Buddhism and going to Nepal and India and studying Salama Sultram, and I had still a little bit of a um, a little snag around all of the. Uh, yeah, more kind of dominant male leadership. And um, it didn't feel embodied and it didn't feel expressed and it didn't feel like I could include all of me there. Uh-huh. Um, and it doesn't mean I, I don't yeah. love the practices and I still do many right. of them and I honor them. But I'm curious how that reckoning happened for you, because I imagine you probably had similar thoughts at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. For probably 30 years. <laughs> Really? Yes. Yeah. Well, 20 years, let's say, because I entered Tibetan Buddhism in 1980. And, um, you know, in those days, there was hardly any Dakini talk and yeah. barely Tara. I mean, there just wasn't much yeah. for women that was specific or that was in any way uh, mirroring us mm-hmm. to ourselves. Um, but the but the philosophy, of course, is so engaging, and you know, so there's so much about Tibetan Buddhism that is wonderful. It is very shamanistic. Mm-hmm. All that noise is just glorious. Yeah. The drumming and the chant. Yeah. But uh, it was the Dakini practices that really pushed me over into uh, understanding. Oh, these are female practices from such an ancient time from pre-Buddhist times, in right. fact. And that these were, you know, the Dakinis are like yoginis in India. They're they're wild women. They're the Minads of Greece. You know, they're right. really all of that. And, and so uh, when I started to do the practices so seriously up in my little mountain cabin, the women from the Bay Area that had been my students uh, for such a long time started to find me. They started to actually <laughs> make their way out through the forest to where I lived. And I and they wanted to know what I was doing. And and so I started to share the Dakini work. And that became my work for mm. all this 20 years. That's been really the heart of my last 20 years of work is wow. working with uh, practices that I have adapted 
from the really strict, serious, long, concentrated practices in Tibetan. Mm-hmm. You know, I, my goddess women and I are never going to be that. We're we're more like householders, you know. Right. And so we're not going to practice four times a day. We're not going to be on retreat all the time. We need practice. I felt for such a long time that women's spirituality circles as wonderful as they are and have been, that there was a lack of focus, yes. a lack of grounded um, focus. Yeah, and, and disciplined uh, practice too. Method. Yeah. And so the the Dakini practices, the mandala practices were so mm-hmm. beneficial for me mm-hmm. that I began to share them, but in a very adapted way, mm-hmm. in English, very simple, really simplified, um, and made for women who aren't actually Buddhist mm-hmm. and don't necessarily intend to be. And any of my students who got more serious and wanted to do retreat and serious practice, I sent them to Sultram. Yeah. You know, and but they're but it's a small minority of my following. Uh, they mostly don't aren't looking for that and just mm-hmm. want a daily practice that grounds them in the feminine, that grounds them in feminine energy, deep, deep feminine structure. Mm-hmm. And that's the Dakini mandala. And the Dakini is such a wonderful icon of female freedom. Oh, yes. you know, we don't really have that in the United States. It's yes. strange. We we left that somewhere. Right. We have Mary, but she's desexualized. And, right. you know, we just don't have a sacred, wild, Right. female archetype. And so the Dakini has been super, super important for me in my whole life because mm-hmm. I did I did sort of discover her, you know, uh, in the beginning, but not with not with the practices in front right. of me. Right. Well, that's awesome. I love hearing that. And I would love to do your Dakini practice one day. Um, yes, you were going to come for a tutorial. <laughs> yes. Thanks and it has, the pandemic. That's... Yeah, the pandemic has, you know, it's like I've had, uh, I think it's just now that in the last few months or so that it's felt like I have some of my mentees and clients coming to my home and it's so nice. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to do that because yes. as much as zoom is great, it's great. It's awesome. But I do feel like there's just something to being in person with people. Oh, it's, there's nothing like it. Nothing like and it. to be in our own space as teachers, yeah. you know, so that everything is at my disposal. Right. If, if we veer off into some interesting area that I didn't plan for, but that she is interested yeah. in or part of, I I have resources. I right. can shift gears. I can be very yeah. spontaneous. And the Dakini, you know, Vajra Yogini, we say that what she represents in Tibetan Buddhism is spontaneous enlightenment. Mm. So it's about being in the present, being in the moment. Yeah. And you can do that a little in classes. I always have been yeah. able to be somewhat fluid in my classes, even though yeah. they have a plan. But in in a one-on-one, we yeah. can go anywhere. Right. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Well, next time I'm, I know I'm taking a trip to California now that I'm in Colorado, um, I would love to do that because I got the Dakini Mandala uh, empowerment from Lama Sultram at one of her retreats. And uh-huh. 
it was beautiful and I did practice it for a while. And I'm full confessional publicly here. It <laughs> felt like a lot, like it was a lot. It was like an hour long reading all the different mantras, uh-huh. Uh-huh. It felt overwhelming. So I eventually kind of adapted some and created my own sort of just relationship with, um, but a little too unstructured. And this is what I talk about in my group uh-huh. too. It's like, we, we do need a method. We do need a balance yes. of structure. We need something to contain us. Otherwise we're all over the place. We're all over the what place. And I love that. Yeah, the reclaiming of our innate spirituality and our uh-huh. rituals and our bodies and all of that. And yeah. if we really want to be practitioners, like mine is not going to be just seated silent meditation. Uh, like I don't feel like this life, that's my main met, my main practice, but I could see seated doing with the Dakini. And mm-hmm. anyway, there are, I do think we need we need structured practices. I do too. Yeah. And you know, once you have the mandala practice, you can be creative. I, I've I've taught a lot in Italy for the last uh, 15 years and um, have a bigger uh, field of students there who are serious and who, wow. who actually practice That's even awesome. when I'm not there. Yeah. Um, and, That's and always good. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> it's not an American thing. <laughs> so I have given them these practices, you know, but I've told them after after they do my practice the way that I have transmitted it to them for a year and a day, then they are free to pass it on if they have women's circles or something, you know, and so a lot of them have done that and have become quite proficient. But I also encourage them to be creative. If you're a dancer, dance it. If you're a painter, paint it, Mm. you know, bring creativity to it so that it's not a chore. Your practice shouldn't be a chore. It should be a joy. When When I lived in the mountains, I used to, I had I I my main practice is Black Dakini trauma, and I would I have her mantra her mantra of approach and her mantra of accomplishment. So mm-hmm. I would take my morning walk a mile and a half up the road, and to an intersection, and usually there were no cars, <laughs> for the most part. And in the intersection, I would do my mandala practice, mm-hmm. and I could see the ocean from wow. there. And I could see everything, all the forest and the world, you know. My mandala was very big. Wow. Then I would uh, go down the mountain saying the mantra of accomplishment. And so that that became very creative for me, very Mm -hmm. alive. And I did it for years. And, you know, it's just you can do anything with these practices. Make them simple. Make them you. Yeah. You know, yeah, and then just stick with them, right? Like, don't bounce around. Like, commit, commit, commit. I think we live in a culture of non-commitment, and Boy, don't we? Yeah, you know, distraction and jumping from one thing to another. And yeah, I remember when I was twenty and I was traveling around Europe backpacking, and I stayed with this, you know, this kind of old older witch in Edinburgh, and she said, "Oh, the spirituality that that you do is like the buffet kind, huh?" <laughs> Shit. <laughs> She's like, oh, you're just jumping from one thing to another. Because at the time I was 20, I was reading autobiography of your yogi. I was probably reading your book, you know, (laughs) she there was that stuck with me so deeply because I think it does say a lot about Western, the Western mind and the Western consumption of, you know, what we don't 
we we haven't grown up in a culture that practices yeah. any of those Eastern practices. Yeah, you know, so we have to we have to shop around a little bit yeah. in the beginning in order yeah. to understand what's real to us and totally what, what we vibrate with. But once we've found a path, then I think the path holds us to it. Yeah, my black dakini path found me before I understood what I was getting into. Mm. And and so, you know, she like she's mine and I'm hers. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. so beautiful. And so that keeps me on track. I love that. And that's the truth. It's like it when it when it when it has you, it has you. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, I want to honor your time and finish our podcast and just say thank you. I feel like we could talk for hours. Like I didn't even look at my questions because we just oh. got to be in deep. No, but we, we <laughs> I always trust we go exactly where uh-huh. we're needed to go. I like to have a backup. But um, and so I just want to highlight for people how they can engage with your work. Mother Peace Tarot Deck any of Vicky's books, including Shakti Woman, but there are other books as well. And then that you have this class coming up. Yes, I'm very excited about my class. It starts October 27th, and it will run on uh, consecutive Thursdays, uh, four Thursdays before Thanksgiving, and then three after. Um, And if you go to my website, there's a link and you can you can uh, get to the website with more information yeah. we'll post and, all of that for them okay yeah okay. yeah wonderful yeah. lovely and uh, you do astrology readings which are yes, really beautiful and so anyone here if you want to book an astrology reading with vicky i've had one it was amazing um it's oracular I, astrology oracular astrology awesome um so I really feel like it's important in today today for us to honor the women who have came before us. So I hope that everyone here engages with your work um, in some way, shape, or form, also as an honoring of you know the way that you paved for all of us because you mm-hmm. really did. I really feel that Thank when you. I read Shakti Woman and when all the I, I recommend it to all my clients and all my groups, and they're all like, "Wow, wow, 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 wow!" Yeah. And I love and just uh, cherish the the work you're doing and thank you the ways that we connected from the very beginning uh, across the generational yes (laughs) yes which i have to add you know some of vicky's uh cards from the mother peace deck were uh, licensed by christian dior and painted beautifully onto leather jackets and so when i met her which i was hoping to meet her kripalu and she's wearing the jacket with the death card on it which is just this amazing snake and all this it's a great card um i was just like oh my gosh (laughs) so beautiful that was a dream that was like a visit to the god realms (laughs) oh so so cool so you can also google the mother peace christian dior um there were dresses too i remember seeing and um, beautiful things they're on my website also okay cool awesome thank you so much vicky so appreciate you taking the time thank you so much for listening to today's podcast For more, 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 follow me on IG at Alexandra Roxo, and you can get on my mailing list where I send poems, practices, rituals, links to upcoming retreats and events, and all kinds of goodies. And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. 
please write us a review. Give us a five-star rating, all of that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon.